All right. Let's go to our Heavenly Father once more in prayer this morning. Dear Almighty God, Lord, we thank you that we are able to sit here and gather this morning as your people in this place to lift up our voices and sing praise to you. Father, we can do so without fear of uh, somebody barging in to arrest or worse, kill us for our faith in Christ. God, so many around the world gather in secret in the darkness of night to avoid persecution, to avoid being arrested and beaten and killed. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would not take this for granted, but more importantly, we pray for our brothers and sisters. Give them continued strength to gather, to worship you as one body, to continue to encourage and build one another up. Father, we think of places such as China and North Korea, in the Middle East, in the Horn of Africa, where the church faces persecution week in and week out. God, be with our brothers and sisters there. Strengthen their faith. Help them to hold fast despite the opposition because you, Lord, are worthy of worship and praise. God, we also want to pray, Lord, for uh, those in Togo, especially those involved in theological education there. Lord, one of uh, several strategic points in the world in which theological education is taking place to uh, further equip pastors uh, to uh, teach their churches. Lord, so often in uh, missions and evangelism, we go and share the gospel, get a profession of faith, and then leave them. And they're clueless of what it means to follow Jesus. So we praise you for the fact that there are theological education opportunities, especially here in Togo, to equip pastors, to equip those who are called to oversee and shepherd the church. Help them to grow in their knowledge and understanding of you so that they may go and pour that truth into those members within their own churches. God, continue to build your church faithfully upon your word equipping us to understand it and to delight in you because of it. God, we ask that same thing for our sister church just up the road in Bethel Baptist Church and their pastor, Kevin Cox. We pray this morning as uh, Kevin steps into the pulpit to preach your word, Lord, that you would help him to faithfully proclaim your word there, that your word would go forth there and, and build up the saints at Bethel Baptist Church. God, we pray, Lord, that you would Help them to leave there worshiping and trusting in you more. God, and we pray the same for here. We pray for our time together as we come to the preaching of your word. Lord, we have already prayed your word. We've read your word. We've sang your word. And now we preach your word. And even after, we get to see your word visible in the Lord's Supper. So be with us in this gathering. Help us to be unified as one body who worships you together. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2010, 
I had the opportunity to return to my hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee, and work for the University of Tennessee Chattanooga football team, Go Mox. Uh, worked two and a half years there, uh, in which I oversaw uh, various sports, mostly football, but basketball operations, wrestling, softball, you name it, I did it. Uh, was a man of many hats. But it was one of the first times that I was in a position of authority, really. It was a hard lesson that first six months in which the Lord was doing some work in my own heart of what did it mean to be a leader? What did it mean to uh, oversee people under me? I came in with a hard hand. I came in uh, wanting to show my assertiveness. And boy, did those students know I was a mean cuss. And I mean a mean cuss. I abused that authority. It was a hard lesson. They were looking at like, who are you to show this kind of authority? Who are you to do that? And it was like, well, I've got the title. I missed the point of the title though. It was to teach and lead the students and show them. But my authority was questioned, and I had to earn and prove that kind of authority. But you know, the interesting thing is, anytime you go into a new position, there's always those issues of authority, and how do you handle it? But one who came in and did it perfect was still questioned, at what authority do you do these things? And that's what we're going to see as we open up Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open there to, to Mark 11, verse 27, whether in your personal Bible or the pew Bible in front of you, uh, or even a digital copy. Since Jesus began his ministry back in, in Mark 1:27, the people were amazed at his teaching, that he was one who taught with authority, that he was one authoritative enough to cast out demons. In Mark 2.10, Jesus makes clear that he, the Son of Man, has the authority to forgive sins. In Mark 7, 1-13, Jesus condemned the oral traditions. Wait a minute, Jesus, who do you think you are condemning our traditions, calling them out? That was under attack, but he had authority to do so. Then, just last week, we looked at Jesus coming into the temple and overturning tables, casting out the money changers, flipping their chairs over, and driving it all out. And the question on the mind of the religious leaders of the day, on what authority do you have to do this? What authority are you doing these things? And that's where we pick up here in Mark 11, verse 27. So follow along as I read Mark 11, 27 through 12, 12. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. 
And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he t had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. If I've understood this text rightly, and doing this preaching thing rightly, in which I take the main point in the text and make it the main point in the sermon, it is this. Jesus is the cornerstone in which the kingdom of God is built. Therefore, the church must be built on him. Let me repeat that. Jesus is the cornerstone in which the kingdom of God is built. Therefore, the church must be built on him. We're going to look at this in three points. Point one, the Father's authority. Point two, the hardening heart. Point three, the cornerstone. So look at this first point, the Father's authority. Again, the question remains, on, on what authority do you do this, Jesus? What authority do you do these things? Not just the flipping over the table, the, the whole of Mark, they're wondering, who are you to forgive sins? What gives you that authority? No one can forgive sins but God. On what authority do you teach this way, handling the scriptures like no one's ever heard? On what authority do you cast out these demons? He's already been accused by casting them out by Satan himself. Imagine the Son of God, the Son of Man being called the Prince of Demons and casting them out. And yet that's what was going on. They rejected Jesus and his authority through and through. And that's what they, they come asking here in, in 27. That's why they ask it. As soon as Jesus enters in for the third straight day into the temple, he's bombarded by a group of religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. This group is made up of pre, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And they all came to him, either part of this group of 71 leaders or or the whole of the 71 leaders. They bombard him pretty much as soon as he walks in. They want to put Jesus on trial. One commentator writes this of the Sanhedrin. He says, The Sanhedrin, a buffer organization between Rome and the Jewish nation, was composed of 71 members who held near complete freedom in religious matters and restricted power in political matters. 
The reason I note this, the whole goal of the Sanhedrin was to turn this over to have complete freedom over both religious matters and political matters. The Sanhedrin wanted a king who came in to conquer and deliver Israel from the hand of the Roman government and make it a nation in and of itself again. They wanted that. They wanted that power. They wanted control of this. And that's why they're questioning Jesus. They want to, to get Jesus out of the way and make room for the true king of Israel, so they think. And him come onto the scene and give them exactly what they want. That's the heart behind the Sanhedrin. That's why they question him. They want to prove Jesus guilty. Notice how they do so. It says there in verse 28, And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? In other words, they, they want Jesus to say, I do this by the authority of God, so that they can accuse him of being a blasphemer. For Jesus to say, I do this by the authority of God. Wait a minute, Jesus. How, how's God talking to you? You're not his prophet. You're not his son. Like, who, who gave you this authority? It's not from us. So, so this must come from God, which means you're blaspheming. You're guilty. And by Jewish law, condemned. They want to condemn and trap Jesus here. That's what they're getting at and working toward this. But notice what Jesus does. He says there in verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, here it seems as if Jesus is sidestepping this question. You know what? I don't want to answer this, so I'm going to ask another question. I'm going to evade this. I want to escape it and run from it. I'm going to pretend you didn't ask this. So I'm going to, to turn the tables here. When in reality, not so fast, my friends, as Lee Corso would say, he was pointing to the very thing they asked. But they had to understand something else. And that was the baptism of John. Turn with me back in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We don't do this a lot, but uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 4. I want us to reread this and us to understand what Jesus is getting at here and the crucialness of his authority and from where it comes. Where it came, I should say. Mark 1, verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. 
by what authority did Jesus do this? They needed to consider John the Baptist and whether his baptism was from God or man, because in this answer, they see to where Jesus gets his authority. John the Baptist came not as one of anything else, but a prophet pointing forward and preparing the way of the Lord, preparing the way for the Son of Man. Yes, John, he, he proclaimed a baptism of repentance there in verse 4. But notice again what it says there uh, in verse 7. And he preached saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John's pointing forward and saying, This is the one who's coming. I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. Remember, everyone wears sandals in the nation of Israel. These straps that would have been tied, dusty roads, not paved sidewalks like we're spoiled with. Dust and manure covering the streets. John's not even worthy enough to bend down and untie the straps of the one who's to come. Who is the one to come? Notice the baptism of Jesus there in verse 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. If John's baptism was simply by man, then yes, Jesus, his authority, he's guilty of asserting it. But... But if it is of God, if it is God indeed who here is speaking at the baptism of Jesus, then Jesus too is working of God's authority, not his own. And notice there what it does. And a voice came from heaven as the heavens are split. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The Father makes public and inaugurates the authority given to Jesus the Son in the baptism by John. He teaches this in order to say, Pharisees, my authority is from God. You missed it of John and killed him. You did not listen to him. And therefore you're missing my warnings too. But notice what happened for the Pharisees. There it goes on to say, uh, if a debate in verse 31, and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. They allowed the fear of man to creep into them and cause them to deny answering this question. They didn't want to get it wrong. They couldn't say that it was from God because they didn't believe it themselves, but they couldn't say it was man because they knew the crowds would turn on them. They wouldn't have their standing as authoritative. They, were, they themselves would have the people ready to destroy them. They missed the authority, though, of the Son. By missing the authority of the Son, they miss everything else He is about. Brothers and sisters, if we get the authority of Jesus wrong, we cannot rightly 
submit and obey and follow Christ. If we do not understand who this authority comes from, our hearts will harden, as we're going to look at in our second point. But we must understand where this authority comes from. It comes from God, and this is what is to drive us in the Christian life. It's what to, is to drive us as a local church. This authority is to drive all that we are because this authority did indeed come from God. It comes from no other. It does not come from man. It comes from God. And in fact, Jesus, in, in turning this question on the Pharisees, on the Sadducees, on the chief priest, asserts himself, I am not under the Sanhedrin. I am over them. I am over it all. That's why Jesus goes on to say in the, the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And because it's been given to him, he calls us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. Because he is authoritative, this is our marching orders, Christian, to make disciples. And if we think that we're the ones who are calling the shots on how this whole thing is meant to look, we will miss it all. So let us beware. Let us see the authority of King Jesus and begin to submit to it. But we must beware of what can happen if we miss this point. Let's turn to point number two, the hardening heart. Notice what Jesus does here after. Or, uh, the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin refused to answer this. He goes into this parable. Now, keep in mind, Mark's gospel has not used any parables of Jesus' teaching since Mark 4, I believe. So, so, this is the first time he's going back into this. And it's also the only parable in which he goes into that's a judgment parable. He's teaching a, a theme of judgment in this parable. And he opens in verse 1 there of chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine presses and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. This seems very foreign to us. But I, I assure you, in the day this was written, this was widely known it was widely known that farmers would buy land and set it all up, prepare their fields to be harvested, would then lease it to tenants to work, and they would go on and do business elsewhere, and yet would be expecting a crop in return at the right season because it was their money, it was their investment. The tenants were, were simply there managing and, and hired to do the job, but they worked on behalf of the owner. That's what's going on here. The, the tenants are that of the religious leaders. They are being called to, to work on behalf of the owner. And who is the owner? God himself. God has given these religious leaders a, a purpose in the nation of Israel. But they're working not on behalf of themselves, but of God and the king who he is going to establish. Namely, Christ himself. And yet, this parable is about what happens when they fail to hear these words. So let's, let's see what they did. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants 
to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and to him they killed, and so with many others. And some they beat, and some uh, they killed. Jesus sent, or God sends his servants to the people of Israel over and over again. He sent Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, and on and on. God constantly sent his prophets to the nation of Israel, and yet they again and again rejected him. They rejected the prophets who God sent to speak to them. They thought, no, we want it our way. We want our authority. We're not. You're not speaking from God. That's what some of the people of Israel would tell the prophets. You're not a prophet from God. Jeremiah, the, the weeping prophet, was arrested and beaten so many times throughout the book of Jeremiah, throughout his ministry, as he was sent to the people. Others were killed. Others were belittled. Over and over again, they had rejected God's prophets. So God, finally here in, in verse 6, it says, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Finally, Jesus is going to die. He's already told his disciples three times, I am going to die and rise again. He knew this is why he was coming to Jerusalem, was to go to the cross. And he's making it clear, I know what's coming. I know it. And yet he tells this as a warning to the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the group that makes up the Sanhedrin. He tells them this because of their ongoing rejection of him. They are going to reject the cornerstone in which the whole of God's kingdom is to be built. They're going to reject it. And notice what he says there and makes it clear in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Their destruction is coming, all because they have allowed their hearts to continue to harden. Because once more, here Jesus is pursuing their hearts. He's pursuing their hearts to expose it, for them to wake up and see He is the Son. He is the cornerstone. He is the one to deliver Israel. And yet, they continue to ignore it and reject it. How so? Verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parables against them. So they left him and went away. Their hearts hardened in its fullness. No matter how many times Jesus tried to expose their wicked hearts, they failed to repent. They failed to see their need of Jesus. Hardening of hearts happens when we allow sin to reign freely. When we chase after the desires of our own hearts, 
Hardened hearts creep in. It doesn't happen just boom. It happens gradually. It happens as we ignore sin and and willingly go to it over and over again. Hardening of hearts happens when we set our minds on the wrong thing and, and pursue our own power, our own control. That's what was happening for the Sanhedrin in that day. And the danger is for all of us, if we fail to beware, it can happen in our own hearts. Christian, I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus. If you can live in willful sin and neglect exposing it, neglect dealing with it, your hearts too can harden and lead you away from Christ for all eternity. Not that you would lose your salvation, but that you would prove to have never been in Christ. Because the mark of a believer is holding fast to Jesus and continuing to rest in Him for that salvation. Resting in His promises. Going to Him over and over again. But a hardened heart leads one to begin to think, you know what, I really don't need Jesus. I'm pretty good myself. We must beware of the same thing happening to us. When it talks to religious leaders in the Scriptures, we need to take a deep look at our own hearts. Because often, brothers and sisters, if we're to fall on one thing, if we grew up religious or in the church, it's towards the bend of the religious leaders. Toward thinking we are better than the rest. That somehow we have something to offer to God. Or... We fight for how the way it always has been, rooting it in our traditions. We must see the dangers of our hearts hardening in sin. We must continue to allow God's Word to shape us, to pierce us, to keep this hardening of hearts from happening. Brothers and sisters, we allow this to happen when we put our focus in the wrong place. We need to see that. We must beware the continued rejection of Jesus and his authority for the sake of our own will lead us to a hardened heart, a place in which we will not be awakened. Our hearts harden against God as we become dull of hearing his word from the pages of the Bible. Our hearts harden in sin as we think that God's word is no longer applicable today. Our hearts harden in sin as we turn more inward towards ourselves. Christian, we must fight against this hardening of our hearts by continually gathering together and stirring one another in the faith, by calling out sin in one another's lives. But we also must continue looking to Jesus and building all we do upon Him and His authority, or we will miss the point. And allow our hearts to harden because we think religiosity and Christianity is about something in and of ourselves instead of the one it points to. And that's where we turn in our third and final point, the cornerstone. Look with me at the second half of verse 10 and 11. It says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus came 
and died. He was rejected. And yet, because of that, that is what makes him the cornerstone in which unites God's people, both those before his coming and those after in him. God's entire kingdom is built upon the chief cornerstone, Jesus himself. Those of the Old Testament were looking forward to the day in which Jesus would come. They were longing for his coming, awaiting it. And those that placed their faith in a coming Messiah, in a coming serpent crusher from Genesis 3.15, who believed in that coming Messiah, were indeed saved by that faith. Abraham was made righteous by his faith in believing God's word. And those of us today who have trusted and placed our faith in Jesus are now looking back onto Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father apart from him. We place our faith in him, and we are saved and united to those of old. And therefore, the whole entire church is built in Christ. The church is, yes, it's, it's here today, Central City Baptist Church, but we are joined with churches from throughout the ages, united in Christ, together as one people in one God, united in Jesus. And therefore, it is Jesus who is holding it all together. Though he was rejected, he is the one who indeed establishes this kingdom. And because he's the one who's authoritative, he guides this kingdom, and it's all to be built upon him. Look with me, or listen as I read from Matthew 16, 15 through 20. It says, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Because Jesus is the cornerstone. It's the confession that he is the Christ in which the kingdom will be built. It's on that confession. Brothers and sisters, that's why we take church membership as Baptists the way we do. Recognizing that to, to be a member of a local church is to be a professed believer. It's not just because you show up week in and week out. It's by that profession of faith that unites us and builds us as a church. That's why we guard membership. That's why we think through it the way we do. That's why we, we just recently talked about making sure we knew who our members were to care for them, to make sure they're professing the faith in Christ and holding to that faith. Jesus is the cornerstone, and the church exists and is built upon him. Anything else we build the church upon will fall. It will crumble. It will decay. There, there's too many churches around that want to be seeker-sensitive, attractionalism, and do everything to get people there, but never introduce them to Christ. A 
Christless church in which it's about gimmicks and ploys to get people there and keep them there is a church that is not honoring or built upon the cornerstone. And therefore, it will crumble, whether now or when it matters before God. Christ is what the church must be built upon because he's the one holding it all together. Mark Dever, in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, writes, The culture to which we can would conform in order to be relevant becomes so inextricably entwined with antagonism to the gospel that to conform to it must mean a loss of the gospel itself. In such a day, we must rehear the Bible and reimagine the concept of successful ministry, not as a necessarily immediately fruitful, but as a demonstrably faithful to God's word. Brothers and sisters, if we are to build the church on the cornerstone, it must be faithful to God's ways, to how he has instructed to us, because Christ is the one who's authoritative, not us. It must be done in his ways, being built upon Jesus and Jesus alone. So how do we fight hardened hearts? How do we ensure that we are building the church on the cornerstone, we constantly return to the pages of the Bible. We constantly allow the Bible to reshape us over and over again, reforming to the Word of God. In just two Sundays is the anniversary in which Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg criticizing and calling out the Catholic Church for missing the gospel. For years, the Catholic Church had made it about works, made it about giving of gifts in order to buy salvation, to buy one's way out of purgatory. It was missing, though, Jesus. Luther made sure he returned to the pages of Scripture and reformed according to them. Brothers and sisters, if we are to be faithful, if we are to be faithful as a church, we must always be reforming according to God's Word. Our traditions cannot be what shapes us. If we allow traditions to shape us, we will be mad when somebody comes in and says, no, this is not the way of Christ. Because our traditions matter more to us than being faithful. That's exactly what happened with religious leaders. They held to their traditions instead of the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, let us beware. Let us continue to reform to the Word of God. We must build our church too then on this gospel of Jesus that means us, everything we do about the gospel. The gospel is not just some catchphrase. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He is the one who came to deliver us from sins, and believing in this and holding to it, resting in its power, that this is how God saves sinners, through the call of the gospel. For to build our church faithfully, we must be about the gospel. 
That means we need to be taking it to the lost around us. We need to be resting ourselves in it and never tire of hearing it. Too many of us, when we hear the gospel, become cold and like, oh, I've heard, here it comes, I've heard that before. Brothers and sisters, let it never become tiresome to us. Let us hear it and rejoice as we are reminded Christ bled and died to save me from sins. And friend, if you are here this morning and you do not know this Savior, you have yet to believe in this Jesus, in this gospel, hear the call now. Repent from your sin and come to Jesus. Believe in him and him alone for salvation. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who helps make us and unites us as a church. It is that Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must continue looking to Jesus if we are to be faithful and to keep our hearts from hardening. And brothers and sisters, one last thing. Because Christ is the cornerstone, we can be certain that people will continue being united to him. Even when we fail as a church, even when we fail as a Christian, even when we get it wrong, the church will not stop growing because it's going to be built as the name of Jesus is proclaimed and told around the world. Right now, people are coming to faith as they hear the gospel in places like China, in Iraq, Iran, Places like Eritrea, Nepal, Somalia, North Korea. All of these places, the gospel is going forth. Even right here, the church will be built on Christ, the cornerstone. He will continue adding. The question is, will we continue to be faithfully a part of what he's doing? Or will we seek our own ways by our own means, thinking that we're in control. We must see that we are tenants laboring on behalf of the king who has the authority. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. Father, we pray, Lord, that even now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, Lord, that you would remind us of what you have done for us. How you have called us to yourself and purchased us by your blood. Father, we pray, Lord, that we will continue to grow more faithful and reform according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have not already gotten a cup, please come.